This episode of The Weeds is brought to you by the new Showtime documentary series, The Trade. The Trade is an immersive five-part series about America's heroin crisis. It's an intense, comprehensive analysis. The Trade follows the users, the smugglers, the cops, and the cartel. Everybody has a story. Don't miss this really cool new documentary series. It starts February 2nd at 9 p.m., only on Showtime. Weeds listeners, go to Showtime.com and enter code WEEDS. You'll get a 30-day free trial. That offer expires February 28th, but that's how much they think you're going to love this show. I think I'm too tired to come up with good yeah, transitions. Yeah, nothing. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Ezra Klein, Sarah Cliff. It is not Tuesday, it is Wednesday. It's weird. Because we wanted to watch The State of the Union Tuesday night. Before we could tell you what the state, the, the real state of the union is, and it's it's amazing. <laughs> like, let's get this out of the way. State of the union, he did what they said he would do, which is he offered a pretty normal state of the union speech. He read off of the teleprompter. It was reasonably competently done in its atmospherics. But I think what was interesting about it from the weeds perspective is Usually when you're looking at a president's first real state of the union, because technically the one when they come, when they do the speech right after getting uh, into office, it's not a state of the union, it's just an address to Congress. But but so this was his first real state of the union. They really use that opportunity to unveil their second year agenda. The um, first year is this push, you know, they're, they're, they're getting through some of the big pieces of policy they they pushed on the campaign. And that was true for Donald Trump. They did Obamacare repeal and replace, and that didn't work out. They did tax reform, and that did work out. And so you usually use the State of the Union to unveil and make the case for what you want your second year to be about. And the second year is big, particularly if you're in, in the position Trump is in, which is Republicans have big congressional majorities now, but a year from now, those congressional majorities might have been voted out of office. And what was really striking to me about the speech was there was basically no forward-looking policy unveiled. Donald Trump defended his administration's record. He talked a lot about the strength of the economy. What he just did not do was offer anything about what he wanted next. He wanted somebody else to write an infrastructure bill. He has you know, created this mess of an immigration negotiation and he'd like people to agree with him. But there was no case for, for the next year. And that was what was so what, what I thought was notable. There was this sort of joking on Twitter where or earlier in the evening because they came out and, and the big term they were going to use was a new American moment. And usually when you use one of these, like a new American moment, the new American foundations, a square deal for a new America, like all these, it's always like... Here is my five-point plan for what my big agenda looks like. And he just meant we're in a new American moment now. There was no, like, new American moment agenda. (laughs) Part of what's interesting about it is that you could get the impression from watching the speech that there is no policymaking happening in the Trump administration. And, like, that's why they didn't talk about it. But, in fact, like, Trump is working on a plan to take— the most vulnerable people in the country, right? Low-income, sick people with healthcare needs and make their lives dramatically worse, right? Like that is a big point of policy focus. Wait, he's working on a plan to do that? 
I mean, well, you're talking about are you talking about Medicaid, Medicaid work waivers? Requirements? Yeah, they're doing oh, that. Okay. They're talking okay. about doing it, and then they're talking about doing it on Snap. You know what I mean? Like they are plugging away at things like fairly relentlessly. Not, not necessarily Donald Trump personally, but like his team. They get up in the morning and they say to themselves, like, "What can we do to make life harder for poor people in America?" And they're they're struggling with weak congressional majorities, but they're they're doing what they can on that. You know, like they they have taken up this mission that like things are it's like it's a little too easy to be living in poverty in America. It's a little too easy to get medical care and we got to we got to make that harder. And he didn't he didn't offer an alternate characterization of that agenda to mine. He just like he doesn't want to talk about it. He thinks it's very important. He may literally not know what's happening. He thinks it's very important, right? His administration is bearing a meaningful political cost to say that there will be offshore drilling in the coastal waters of South Carolina. Republicans who represent those beachfront areas, like they don't want to do that. Democrats don't want to do it. Catastrophic implications for global climate change. But like Trump is like, he is that much. He thinks big oil companies have it too hard in America. And he's working. He's going to make endangered wildlife in Alaska pay the price. He's going to make beachfront property owners in the Atlantic pay a price. Like they're they're doing that. He didn't mention it. He just, he didn't mention any of the things that he's doing because I think he knows his agenda is completely indefensible. And then instead he talked about things that it would be popular to make progress on, like we should do something about family leave, but they're not doing anything about that, right? Like it's just, it, it's just like total risable nonsense. And I think I, I, I was, I am appalled anew, like every time I see cable news reaction to Donald Trump doing anything. And like, I thought somehow like the reaction I saw last night was like worse than what I'd seen before. Like it made me angry. Like he goes up there People say, oh, it's normal. Like, it's not normal to just lie constantly about everything the way he does. And he continued to do it through his speech. Like, it's disgusting. Well, I think one of the things that stood out to me, like you were saying with the family leave thing, is there was certainly, it felt like an acknowledgement of some significant problems. Like, I was, you know, watching a lot of the healthcare stuff, and there's a section where he talks about the fact prescription drug prices are incredibly high. That is 100% true. He talks about the opioid crisis, what a disaster that is. That is 100% true. But there wasn't, as Ezra was saying, a, and like, here's what we're going to do about it. There wasn't like this prescription drug prices are high, so I am going to push legislation that will let Medicare negotiate drug prices. There was, you know, a vague line like it's going to be a top priority f- to reduce those prices, but literally nothing about how one actually does that. Did you and, see um, the shit-eating grin on Paul Ryan's face when Trump starts talking about family leave? It, it was like an amazing moment. It was like Paul Ryan realized he'd been struggling all his life. Like, how do I sell the American people on my, like, relentless agenda of doing nothing to solve any problems for anyone except rich people? And he'd never figured it out. And then there was Trump up there. He's just, like, saying, and we're going to get people affordable family leave. And Paul Ryan, he's like, Trump's not going to do that. Well, I get it. We're just going to lie and he's he's chuckling yeah and this is just you know pervasive in his speech i think i would really encourage listeners dylan scott had a fantastic piece for us yesterday kind of walking through how trump has been making this promise on drug prices for the past year it's kind of out of republican orthodoxy to make this a priority to lower drug prices but and it was kind of surprising and interesting to me the first time it happened like oh like Here's this guy who has like, you know, was just elected, maybe a bit of a wild card. Maybe he will do something on this. 
But it is 100% like not been a priority at all. Um, you know, we saw data from the Healthcare Cost Institute that came out a few weeks ago. They found that the price of prescription drugs, that was the fastest rising type of healthcare price. Like, huh. this is not, and, and I don't think that is because of Trump. Like, I just think it is just something that is going on in the industry that there are no steps being taken to to push back against it. You know, at the same time, there's this mention of the individual mandate repeal. And, um, you know, that is certainly true that the Republicans repealed um, the requirement to carry health coverage and beginning in 2019, that will not be standing law. There was not a mention, though, of the problems this is causing. Like an estimated 3 million people lost health insurance in 2017. And most of the experts I've talked to attribute that to the really uncertain policy environment that the Trump administration has created. So to me, like listening to this speech, it felt like an acknowledgement like of problems, but a lack of, you know, like usually, like usually there's like, I remember from listening to the Obama ones, a lot of like, and here's like the five point plan. And it would be like a little vague, but then there'd be like white papers that would come out afterwards. I would kind of clarify it. There was no like, and here's my plan on drug pricing or like, here's my plan to like turn around the opioid epidemic. So I think this is a really good and important point. And, and one way to, to get at it is to say, imagine that Donald Trump had not become president deep into a many, many, many years long, in fact, the longest consistent, sustained economic expansion in American history. So imagine that he did not become president after the stock market had begun moving into record territory so that like every tick upwards would be more record territory. Imagine if he did not become president after unemployment had been falling for year after year after year after year so that it would continue getting pretty re- really low when he's in office. I mean, I found just as a listener by far the most persuasive part of the speech is when he's just running down good economic data that he's not really responsible for. But so imagine if he wasn't able to do that, right? Imagine if unemployment were 6.7% or, you know, 6.3%. Just something not unbelievably bad, but not great either. Imagine the stock market were, you know, chugging along, but a little shaky. And he's out there and his record is a really unpopular tax cut for big corporations, giving the energy sector everything and anything they want, um, destabilizing health insurance markets such that already we're seeing, as, as Sarah, you point out, a tick up in the uninsured. And we expect that to, to become a a, a big jump over the next couple of years. And he's out there trying to defend that that agenda. What Trump is currently able to do is to wrap himself in economic news he doesn't deserve. And by the way, as a, as a side note to that, the person who probably does deserve the most credit for that performance in the past couple of years, at least a person who was not in the Obama administration who deserves that credit, is Janet Yellen, who Trump declined to reappoint to her job, right? She's leaving like, her job this weekend. Yeah, she's like actually one of the people who lost her job, not because anybody thought she was doing a bad job, including Trump, who said she was doing a good job, but just like he didn't appoint her. So like, we're going to go with a somewhat less qualified white guy who's like not terrible. I have no problem with Jerome Powell. I found, in fact, that he was an incredibly useful uh, source on the debt ceiling over the years. He's really, really smart about that stuff. But as a monetary economist, I mean, he's just actually literally not one. And so- I, I, what I found fascinating about this is that if you if you divorced Trump and the Trump presidency from the economy that predates him and that he's being able to take advantage of, there was just so little there. Um, there was so little forward looking. There was so little backward looking. The agenda doesn't sound that good when when you go through it. And and this relates to a piece Matt wrote. But 
I actually really do think it's worth rewinding the clock a, a year and thinking through what the theories were of the Trump presidency, of which there were many. Um, and, and some of them were were much more threatening, right? That he would be an, a, a, like a like a capable, competent authoritarian, right? That was a, a big strain of worry, and including worries that I had. I think he's just been a, an, an incompetent uh, president with authoritarian instincts. But another was that he was going to oversee this convulsion of American policy and ideology, that he was going to overturn much of what the conservative movement wanted, that he was going to focus on a whole different set of things. And even the sympathetic version, right, the the the, the version of Trumpism that a lot of people wielded like a club was that Donald Trump got elected. And even if you don't like him, you have to respect the fact that he was elected because you have these white working class communities that are not in, in this telling brown enough to get sympathy from liberals and not rich enough to get sympathy from Republicans. And Donald Trump heard their concerns. He understood the way they were being racked by opioids, the way they were seeing their um, children looking to a future that was bleaker than the future they had come from, the way that they were absorbing a tremendous amount of pain from the closing of manufacturing plants, from our trade agreements with Mexico, with China, and that Donald Trump was going to come in and he had heard them and he had spoken to them and he was going to reverse all this. He was. We were going to have a president who was going to have a particular focus on the needs of these communities. And he just doesn't. Um, there's all this talk about the the DDIN in case uh, mortality deaths, right? The the the, the deaths the de- of despair. Thank you. The deaths of despair among among whites. He's done nothing. In fact, done some things that are going to make more white people and everybody die earlier. There's just in terms of the things that Trump was meant to address specifically and uniquely, he has not tried to address them. Herman Lopez has had some great pieces on how little he has done on the opioid crisis in his first year. He is not putting out a plan to address them in the second year. It's not like he said, look, I sort of had to pay back the Republican Party in year one. So I did Obamacare appeal. I, I did tax reform. But now, now I'm going after China. I'm like putting real effort into the opioid crisis. You know, we're going to revitalize the, you know, these communities. There's just no there there. And, and there's no there there. Because Donald Trump doesn't care about any of it. Um, Matt was saying that he thinks that Donald Trump knows that the specifics of this agenda are unpopular. I would be absolutely astonished. Absolutely astonished. I mean, I, I would I would definitely bet significant amount of money that if you ask Donald Trump what his team is doing on Medicaid, that he cannot in any way give you an answer. That the stuff about the waivers, he has no idea and could not describe it. I could be wrong. I, I could totally be wrong about that. But if it has been described to him, I do not think it has been described to him that way. And I think he does not understand it at all. And the central feature of Trump's presidency, the reason Paul Ryan is smiling so big from behind him, is that what Paul Ryan was hoping has been more true than he had ever imagined, which was that Donald Trump just does not care enough about any of this stuff to hold the line on it, to to try to appoint people who agree with him on it. And so he is out there on the one hand running the kind of Trump communications presidency that the Trump reality show that happens on Twitter. He's feuding with the FBI and Jay-Z and Hillary Clinton and crying Chuck Schumer. And on the other hand, more or less doing what Paul Ryan wants him to do congressionally. And so it's been a, a deal I think congressional Republicans are pretty happy with. But when you think about what Donald Trump was supposed to be in American life, this unbelievably disruptive force – it is just notable to me how small the State of the Union was, how small he looked up there, how small the vision was. All the pundits, as Matt says, like converging to be like, this was so normal. That's actually really damning. Take a break. 
as we've all been saying, uh, the economy is in, in better shape these days. There are fewer people out there uh, unemployed who, who need jobs. And that can be actually a problem for you. If, if you have a company, if you need great talent to come work for you, uh, it's it's a little harder to find these days. And that's why you need better tools. Uh, ZipRecruiter is the best tool out there for finding the best people. Uh, they knew there's a smarter way. They built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. They learn what you're looking for. They identify people with the right experience and they invite them to apply for your jobs. And those invitations, they revolutionized how you find your next hire. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And it doesn't stop there. They spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. So the right people, they're still out there and ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Uh, so businesses of all size trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter out for free. For free. No, it's great. It's a confidence in your product. They give you a free trial. They think you're going to use it. They think you're going to love it. Uh, so, so how do you get that deal? You just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. ZipRecruiter, it's the smartest way to hire. Jumping off from where Ezra left off, right? After the election, I would say there were like two competing narratives about Trump's political success, right? And one was the one Ezra laid out, that like Trump spoke to the valid economic grievances of struggling small town America. The other was that Trump articulated racism in a way that previous politicians had not and, and activated racial identity politics among white people. And I think what you really saw in this State of the Union is that Donald Trump has strong opinions about this, right? And that Donald Trump truly believes that Donald Trump's political appeal to white working class voters is built entirely on racism, right? Like, that that's what that speech is and everything he's done. In his well, give the, give the textual analysis of that, because I think I think it'd be easy to watch a speech. I, I think I know what you're saying, but I think it'd be easy to watch a speech and not see it that way. I mean, that, that he does not need to do anything. He has not made in his presidency a single policy move that will improve the material well-being of white working class people. He has made many policy moves that will significantly harm the material interests of white working class people. And his belief is that he can survive politically an agenda that's a relentless assault on the concrete material interests of working class, rural, white Americans by engaging in this pornographic theater in which it's like blood libels against Latino immigrants. And that was on display in this speech, which dedicated, I think if you add up all of the airtime that has been given to named street gangs by American presidents in nationally televised addresses throughout the past 250 years of American history versus like Donald Trump's discussion of MS-13 last night, like it would be an insane bar chart. You know what I mean? Like his thesis about America is that letting Salvadoran kids into your high school is a mortal threat to your children's physical safety. And his thesis about politics is that whipping people up into hysteria about the presence of Latino immigrants in the United States is, like, all he needs to do for his politics. It was, like, blood-curdling display, in my opinion, that was, like, weirdly, like, Jake Tapper, I saw, was like, oh, there was beautiful prose in the speech. And I, 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 just, I don't know. I don't know what people thought they were watching there. I mean, a weird backdrop to all of this is it's happening in the middle of a supposed negotiation on a DACA deal. And I think that is like an odd, which was another thing that like didn't really come up 
at all. That again, you well, he said Americans are dreamers. He's too, all Sarah, Americans are because people who grew oh, up. He he laid out what his view on the DACA deal is. To be fair to him, he like I, had his four point plan on like what he like what he wanted in exchange for dreamers. He just couldn't like describe it accurately. He, yeah, was, I yeah, I was wrong about right. it. So, well, I mean, I, that's the. That, that, that's like another complicating factor of the Trump presidency that Dara has written about before, that he doesn't seem to be like a very clear spokesperson for what the White House is doing. Um, and I think a lot of times things get muddled. Like, I think it would be hard for me and I think a viewer of that speech to walk away thinking like, this is a guy who like really wants to protect the dreamers. I think like a lot of the rhetoric, like Matt is talking about really overwhelms that and, like, groups Latinos together in a way that, like, felt very, very vicious and, like, very, you know, negative um, description. And it, I, I'm curious, like, how this interacts with the actual policymaking that is happening right now, you know, because I feel like if I'm, like, someone who, you know, is more hardline anti-immigration, I'm going to come away from this and, like, feel like, yeah, like, let, let's, like, stick it to MS-13. Like, let's, like, really, like, do as much as we can in that space. But I mean, it's important to be clear, like, the specific immigration policy change that Trump made, right, was that Obama in his final couple years had said he was going to take ICE off the job. The ICE being? Immigration Customs Enforcement. Off the job of, like, hassling random undocumented immigrants, right? What he wanted ICE to do and said was to use them as a kind of supplementary like, organized crime task force that was going to specifically target, like, transnational criminal organizations and focus on deporting violent felons who were uh, immigrants to the United States. Like MS-13. Right. And this was incredibly controversial. ICE agents really didn't like it. Their labor union endorsed Donald Trump. Donald Trump talked constantly about this support from the ICE union. He comes in, he installs John Kelly as Homeland Security Secretary, and he begins very effectively dismantling this Obama policy, right? So like now, under Donald Trump, ICE is no longer focusing its attention on MS-13 and other transnational criminal organizations. They are going to public schools and arresting dads as they drop off their kids. They deported a doctor who'd lived in Detroit for, like, years based on some misdemeanor conviction from, from years ago. There was a story in the in the L.A. Times about Cambodian families. There had been a... Um, I don't know exactly why this was, but at some point they were not accepting sort of deportees from the United States. So on humanitarian grounds years ago, uh, some judges had like waived deportation orders against Cambodian immigrants living in the United States. Uh, So now there's people who have had clean records for the past 10 or 15 years that ICE is going back through their files, picking them up, right? So like this is Trump's policy, right, is do much less, much less than ever before, deliberately, the centerpiece of his immigration agenda is like, do less to fight MS-13. And then the centerpiece of his speech was, if you see a Salvadoran kid at your high school, you should freak the fuck out because it means MS-13 is going to murder your children. And it's like, it's so vile. It's like, it's so, imagine being like a 15-year-old immigrant in high school, in like a school where you you like you haven't you haven't been there a lot, to, like high school's tough, you know. And now the president of the United States is like saying, "Hey, kids, like 
watch out for that guy. He might. It's like it's crazy. And and then in his his speech, he says like, oh, for DACA, we need a deal. We need to change this visa lottery in which we hand out visas randomly. Well, like, guess what? That's not how that works. He well, says, the other piece he of says this. oh, we need to stop the practice where you can bring over unlimited quantities yes. of distant relatives. That's not the policy But, but I want to hold on that for a minute because th- this, I think, is really important. So he laid out his DACA deal. And, you know, some of that had to do with the wall and stuff, but some of it had to do with his diversity visa program, which you've heard about on the weeds before, and the chain migration program. Donald Trump pretty viciously misdescribed chain migration, talking about how you can bring basically anybody who's in any way related to you and also an unlimited number of anyone, which is just not how chain migration works. Um, You cannot bring anyone. You cannot um, bring unlimited numbers. It is not easy to bring people. And so, one, whether he's lying, whether he himself doesn't understand it's very, very, very hard to construct a deal when already the thing you are trying to make a deal on is being violently misdescribed. The other thing is that one thing Donald Trump does not say publicly, as far as I can tell, even though it is a very, very important part of the deal he's laying out, is that the sum total of what he is trying to do is to cut legal migration. You could imagine a deal that would change the way we let in immigrants, right? It would be less based on family reunification and more based on, you know, economic needs of the country as defined by someone or other. And it would we would not do the diversity visa program. We would, you know, move it, the diversity visa lottery, we would move it into some other sets of how we apportion visas. And so the overall flow of legal immigration would be the same. That is not what Trump wants. Trump wants a substantial cut to immigration. And what I think is striking about that is he never argues for it. Um, now, maybe you could say that in some meta way, by constantly demonizing immigrants, he is arguing for it. He is pretty clearly saying that immigrants are making America worse off. But but there really is something notable to me. This is a centerpiece of the legislative fight that the Trump administration is locked in right now. It is specifically the way they have changed this fight. They have come in and in a way people did not expect. And, and I really would recommend Friday's white genocide edition of The Weeds too, because it has a very, very good discussion of this. But in a way people did not expect, they've really focused in on legal immigration. In fact, what the deal they're proposing would do would allow for a pretty large-scale amnesty of people who were not authorized in order to cut legal immigration going forward. So this whole idea that they are only worried about, quote-unquote, illegal immigration, it's not true. He doesn't make the case for that. He doesn't come out and, and argue for that as part of an agenda. He doesn't argue for the, why that would make America better. It it sort of lurks in the background. It is what he is describing, but you need your like secret immigration wonk decoder ring to, to, to unveil it. Not even always 100% clear if he knows what it is, but he then describes it as this kind of reasonable compromise, which – He's not explaining why there is a debate. He's not explaining why he's right in the debate. And then he's misdescribing the policies that are actually under description. And again, this is then the speech that people are like, he did such a great job. Uh, but but that's not helpful for moving a legislative negotiation forward. Um, it's not how this works. And and it is based on, I, I think, some, some pretty vile stuff. There's also a piece in that when he's talking about chain migration and all this. And he talks about protecting the nuclear family. He is literally trying to make it harder for families to be here together. He is literally trying to make it harder for a a, a legal immigrant here to have their family around them. And when you want to talk about people being radicalized, you want to talk about 
crime and, and all that. You, you, and you want to talk about what the Trump administration appears to be afraid of, which is what's happening in Europe. One of the issues in Europe is you have a lot of men without their families. I mean, this is a big topic of discussion over there in when they're talking about immigration and how they structure immigration. You have a lot of men who come, they're working and they're not allowed to have any family there. So they don't have, they don't build ties and they don't, you know, they don't assimilate into the culture. They don't build roots or put down roots. We, I think part of our success as a country in assimilating immigrants has been to actually focus on, yes, like have your family here, set down roots, build a life, like, you know, be be, be part of America. Donald Trump wants to change that. He doesn't just want immigrants to become more American. He wants there to be fewer immigrants and for the ones who are here, for it to be harder for them to become American. Yeah, this is something that jumped out at me in another way, but I think it picks up on what you're saying is it felt like a lot of times, like a lot of, I felt like this one, maybe I'm wrong, it had a lot of shout outs to individuals. There are a lot of like these moments, and I know this happens a lot in speeches, but it felt like this one had an especially high number of them. And a lot of them, you know, there's one that really like stuck with me that kind of felt like it lost the humanness of like the people who he says his policies are fighting for. So this is from the section on the opioid epidemic where he's, you know, talking through all these terrible statistics, you know, 174 deaths a day, 64,000 American drug overdoses in 2016. And then he tells the story of, you know, and, you know, story of incredible generosity about this police officer who found this woman who was about to inject heroin and she was pregnant. And he convinces her, you know, not to inject the heroin because of her unborn baby and they adopt the baby. And it's like, what an act of like, courage and bravery and generosity, but we don't hear anything about, like, what happened to this to this woman who is, like, the thing that is supposedly the problem. Like, she's the one at risk of becoming one of those 174 deaths a day or 64,000 overdoses each year. And just felt, it felt like an odd way, you know, but, but kind of fitting in a way we've been talking about that didn't really think about, um, you know, like who the people were and what solutions you might offer them. Um, instead, it kind of seemed to ignore the actual problem there, that you had someone who was using heroin and likely addicted to it. And, you know, but we don't learn what happens to her after, you know, this family adopts her baby. She becomes very incidental. And, you know, in, in a way, it it felt like really setting aside the humanness of the people who are going to be affected by what the Trump administration does or doesn't do on opioids. And I think like that speaks to, you know, what you're saying about chain migration is it kind of forgets like what that these are like actual people and like you're talking about their lives and making their lives easier or difficult, easier to like prosper economically, to set down roots, to, you know, in this case of this woman, you know, get off heroin, access medicate medication assisted treatment. It just really jumped out at me as like a very um odd way and um, kind of disappointing way to frame to frame that particular problem that he was addressing. I thought every time I hear Trump talk about beautiful babies and beautiful children, which which came up a, a couple different times. And I thought that moment, it, it really hit this because he's like he's talking about the baby and he just like leaves the mother out out of the story. I, I, I don't know if you guys watch watch The Sopranos, but in the in the second to last episode, Dr. Melfi is reading Spoilers. this like new <laughs> new research about about sociopaths, right? And there's this this line in the article that that jumps out at her and changes the way she she thinks about Tony. And it says the criminal sentimentality reveals itself in compassion for babies and pets. 
And I always see that in Trump. It's like these like obviously babies are, are wonderful. Pets are pets are great, but they're not they're not like full human beings who do things and can annoy you and, and, and things like that. And it's it's this this treacly sentimentality about about the beautiful baby is paired with a total lack of compassion for like adult human beings that that I think you see there in the opioid discussion, you know, which was weird. There's like no it goes back to what Ezra was saying, to, to what Sarah was saying. There's like nothing here to like, it's a problem. Like, like, how are we gonna help people? Like, like it's tough. And like, obviously, the unborn fetus is this like perfect victim of the opioid crisis. Uh, but like real drug addicts, you know, like they probably did something to mess up their lives at some point. But it's like, if you want to make things better, you have to deal with that. And like, you have to help real people as they are. And there's like none of that in in Trump or, or anything he does. And it's like he can't even confront that idea of like suffering that isn't just just from a, a place of like pure innocence because it would require some sort of some sort of policymaking and some sort of, I don't know, like actual caring about people that that is like it, it seems completely alien to him. Let's take a break and then let's talk about the Ginger Kennedy. Getting dressed doesn't have to be complicated. In fact, it, it probably shouldn't be if you're like a, a busy person. Uh, and Everline makes it really simple. They go to the best ethical factories. They produce premium products and they sell them directly to you without traditional markups, right? They use good stuff, essential stuff. It's the basics. They use good quality materials and they don't charge it up a lot. They tell you their real costs so you know that you're not overpaying. Uh, and that's amazing. And they sell directly to you, which gives them prices that are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. So the clothes they look look good, they cost less, and, and they last longer. Um, they got basic essentials, like like a Cotton Crew t-shirt so that's exactly what it should be. It's simple, it's stylish, it's made from quality materials. They got the Cashmere Crew straight fit denim, the 100% human tee, and they've got their great twill weekender bag where you can, you can put all your Everlane stuff in the bag, travel for a little bit. No frills, no add-ons, no big markups, no big extra charges, just simplicity and quality. So right now, you can get free shipping on your first order when you go to everlane.com slash weeds. That's Everlane dot com slash weeds everlane dot com slash weeds so the the democratic response to well there are actually a lot of different responses now <laughs> the responses appear to be multiplying but the main democratic response was by joe kennedy the third right and i was sort of working on my trump piece when when this began and looked up and it, it was really striking because I, I think I've seen Joe Kennedy before, but I've not really focused on him. He really him. looks a, like a Kennedy. He, he really, really looks, looks like a Kennedy. Ginger I mean, Kennedy. A Ginger Kennedy, Kennedy. But man, like that jaw is a, is a powerful <laughs> genetic trait. Um, anyway, I was sort of listening to the speech out of the corner of my ear uh, because I was focused on, on putting up this article. But Matt, you really like the speech. And, and it's to me a lot of people really like the speech. And that is unusual because nobody ever liked State of the Union responses. The last one anybody liked was Jim Webb in 2006, I believe it was. Yeah. Um, this was a huge hit. It seemed to establish Joe Kennedy as a star, which people had said that to me, but I just had not run into it before. And so I, I'd like to hear what you what you saw in it. I mean, just 
Analytically, I mean, one reason he was able to give a good response speech is that, as we've been saying, Trump's speech was, like, so hazy, right? So it's like you were—I mean, these are hard to do because you have to write a response to a speech you haven't read. But it's like if you just had to guess, you'd be like, Trump will touch on some Trumpian themes, and so I can respond to that. And since Trump didn't do anything other than kind of, like, touch on his Trumpian themes, it didn't have that, like— point-missing quality that a lot of these response speeches do have. It's not like he failed to rebut some, like, major argument that Trump rolled out because there weren't any arguments. And what I thought was nice about Kennedy's speech was that Democrats have been caught for a while now in this sort of dichotomous sphere between do we stand up for the concerns of racial minority groups and, and you know, to, to an extent, uh, gays and lesbians, women, you know, sort of specific identity groups who feel kind of oppressed by Trumpism? Or do we talk about economic issues that are meant to have uh, a broader appeal or appeal to white working class people or, or something like that? And most Democrats fall sort of somewhere or other on that spectrum. And there's this kind of like very woke Hillary Clinton message where she deliberately downplays economic policy disagreements and amps up the idea that racism is bad. There's the the Bernie Sanders version of this where you like really front load economic disagreement, but then like also endorse all the progressive policy claims on, on racial points. There's a kind of moderate, third wayish version. And Kennedy did a good job, I thought, of hitting the notes that Barack Obama was famous for, which is to just sort of say that these things collapse onto a single spectrum and that it's an egalitarian vision of society in which we don't devalue people because they are sick or because they are gay or because they are black or because they are poor and that we are all in it together as Americans. And I've always felt that Obama delivered this message effectively in part because he's black and so was not sensitive to the critique that he wasn't speaking aggressively enough to the particular concerns of African-Americans. And I've been saying for a while that Democrats, I I think Democrats do need to court more white voters just mathematically. I I really agree with the Roy Teixeira piece that was on Vox about that. And then in a weird way, I thought that putting African-American candidates up there to then talk to white people is like a smarter idea than putting white candidates up there to then like talk about how into Black Lives Matter they are. But it was an interesting, I think, bold and ultimately effective strategy of Kennedy's to just like talk past the fact that in some ways it's like so ridiculous because he's a Kennedy. He's like a fifth generation heir to a giant fortune talking about equality. But he just kind of like blew through it and was like, me too, and Black Lives Matter, and also we need to help factories in, in Toledo. Um, and it was just like, he's a good speaker. It's a good speech. Like, it, it it's a sort of weird pairing of messenger and message, but he just sort of he just sort of gave the best speech that they could write, and he's good at delivering speeches. And so I thought it was really good. And I think this is one, like, as I'm sure all of our listeners know, it's really easy to botch and get made fun of. Like, generally, people who give this speech, 
Like there was the Bobby Jindal, like oh, Kenneth yeah. Page speech. There was the Marco Rubio water incident. There was like Steve Bashir last year in that weird diner. And cont- like it is like, like the bar is so. They read one too many Trump country articles. Yes, he's like Steve sitting. Bashir. He's a former governor of Kentucky. And they like, it was such a weird, like they sat him in this fake diner. Um, so I, I do think like the bar is incredibly low for this particular speech. You know, Ben Terrace at the Post had a good um, piece about how this is like really the job nobody in Washington wants because it seems like it's just constant down. Like you can really like dive down a political career. But one of the things, you know, like hearing Matt describe it that way, it feels like it really touches on like a key tension between the two parties, which is this concept of deservingness and like who who deserves to be American, who deserves to get benefits from the American government, like who do we count as like that group of people. And I think that is something that really we've seen come out very clearly, both in rhetoric and in policy. That's one place where I feel like things actually line up pretty closely in the Trump administration, where it seems to be that they are expressing this view, you know, that there are certain people who are more deserving, um, you know, because of, you know, in health policy, for example, in Medicaid, because they work and therefore they should get health benefits. Um, You know, there's the same kind of debate going on in the immigration space as well. And I think the—and we've seen that develop pretty clearly on the Republican side, the sense that, you know, you have to do something to deserve uh, the benefits of the American government. And I think what Kennedy was articulating more clearly was an opposite vision of that, which is— it's not always the easiest for Democrats to um, articulate. I saw really a poll that surprised me when I was at a healthcare conference yesterday that most Democrats actually support work requirements in Medicaid, which really surprised me. About 50, 60 percent actually like the idea of requiring Medicaid enrollees to work. So I think it was an interesting to see him articulating this like vision of equality, um, you know, when I think that is something that some Democrats still like struggle with internally of whether that fits with their own view of the country. I, I also think, you know, to, to that point, we people of our age, you know, our cohort, we're very accustomed to the recession that began in the late Bush years and the Democratic comeback and then Obama's struggles with that recession. Um, and now like Trump's in and the economy's better and Trump is bragging on it. But in in a sense, the ideological logic goes the other way, right? And it's like, if you listen to Donald Trump and he's like, the stock market's great, unemployment is so low, the economy is booming, that to me really sets up progressive egalitarian arguments that are like, okay, so like, why are we being so fucking stingy with our health insurance, right? Whereas it's the like, okay, the economy is a catastrophe. We like, we desperately, like, we got to get some jobs from somewhere, man. That really sets up well conservative arguments for like, why are you putting all these environmental regulations on companies? Like people really need work, right? But it's like, if things were fine, like in quote unquote, the economy, then that really raises the question of like, so why are so many people being allowed to suffer? And like, shouldn't we do something for them? Democrats are not yet willing to like go there and be like, yeah, Trump's right. The economy is fine. But it's like if the economy keeps, you know, growing along month after month, I think it more and more makes sense to sort of concede that point and say like, yeah, the economy is good. So like, why are we going to like roast the planet and have the highest child poverty rate in the universe? The thing that watching Kennedy's speech reminded me of is that and, and I'm not saying I think Joe Kennedy will run for president or that if he did run for president, he'd win the primary or any of that. But that 
parties are really bad in the aftermath of a loss of projecting what they are going to do to win again. Um, I always think of this period for Democrats is very akin to 2004 after George W. Bush substantially increased his victory margin over 2000. John Kerry was beaten. The Iraq war was already a disaster. Democrats took this as this deep rejection by the country. There were all these maps showing that like in acreage, like like nobody voted for Democrats anywhere, even though it had been a pretty close election. And so then there are all these talks about, you know, has the Democratic Party become the party of gay marriage and like effete liberal cosmopolitans and cappuccino drinkers? I mean, there was this real soul searching on the Democratic Party's part. And so there became like a, a fad for Brian Schweitzer, who was like a tough-talking Montana governor who wore bolo ties. And like maybe Democrats need somebody who wears bolo ties and, you know, or a Southerner like Bill Clinton. And then what they end up doing is electing a guy's name is Barack Hussein Obama and is a liberal African-American politician from Chicago. It's literally the opposite of everything they were all saying right after 2004, but it worked um, because you don't refight the last war. And similarly, Kennedy is not at all the messenger I would have thought they'd put up against Donald Trump uh, for all kinds of reasons. Also, all kinds of reasons related to the party's internal divisions right now, which, you know, there's the Bernie Sanders wing and there's the wing that um, feels very under threat uh, from um, a pretty bigoted presidency. And, you know, there, there's the, the reality the Democratic Party is a party of that is overwhelmingly female and minority in its support. Um, it's not driven by white men. And yet here's Joe Kennedy up there, um, you know, a white man scion of one of the richest, most powerful political families in history. And, and there was a sort of rapturous response to him. And it just made me think the 2020 field is more is yet more open than I had been giving it credit for because more things than I had been assuming might work. Um, the, the Democrats have been really trapped in an argument that is being framed as economic populism versus identity politics, but is actually in reality Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton and has very particular dimensions related to the strengths and weaknesses of those two politicians. But other politicians have different strengths and weaknesses and will be able to merge these arguments in very different ways. And, you know, I think that the party has more appetite than I had thought it did. Um, I thought there was more rejection of Obama uh, in 2016 than perhaps there really is. Not that Democrats don't like Obama. They do. He's extremely, extremely popular. But that there was, it seemed to me, a, a sort of feeling that, well, the hope and change thing didn't work out quite the way Democrats wanted it. So now that you got to go much harder and much more specific and, you know, take on the fight more directly – Kennedy obviously had some hard edges in that speech, but it was a much more hope and change and big picture kind of speech. It, it was more inspiration than it was just confrontation. And, you know, that was something that I thought would be weakened in the Democratic Party. But if it's not weakened at this moment, I think it's probably going to be even less so, you know, as you get to Democratic primaries in 2019 and 2020. Um, so I think the what, what Kennedy showed me was that the field is more open and that the next Democratic standard bearer may not be from the group of people I've been watching most closely and may not sort of look like where you imagined the party was going. The, well, it's an interesting yeah. contrast to Bashir last year, which was like, oh, we're exactly. going to choose someone from Trump country. Yep. He has a Southern accent. He's going to sit in this diner. He's going to talk about the people of Kentucky. Yep. It feels like you don't even have to go back, you know, as far as you were going. You can go back to last year and feel like a big shift. Yep. And I mean, I thought it was, did you guys watch Bernie's uh, speech on Facebook? I did not. I, 
thought it was interesting because what what he did was uh, I thought in in a way this will probably insult all the relevant internet fans, but he was, he, he <laughs> took a he took a very like Ezra Klein tack, which was oh just like he he took Trump's 2016 campaign like at face value and like delineated all these things Trump had promised he was going to do and take on and just like explicated all the ways in which Trump had not done those things and then asserted that like that was a giant failure. And then it's like, I was watching, I was like, on the one hand, like, this is good. Like, this is like a good, like, forensic debate performance. On another hand, I was like scratching my head. It was like, this is like a weird exercise in point missing. Like what Donald Trump promised to do was like to make white people feel like they are the only authentically American ethnic group. And he's absolutely delivering on that promise. And like, why are we not even talking about that? But I guess like that's like the Bernie Sanders debate in a nutshell. Um, Aren't you the one who says that the the key to Trump is to talking about him as a normal politician and looking at his policy proposals and failures more closely? And I I agree with that. It was just, it was like, it was both good and it was weird. He did not, I I thought it was tactically sound as like a election pitch in a way. And it also, it left me cold as like a person who's mad about Donald Trump. You know what I mean? Whereas like Kennedy was, was, was Kennedy expressed how I feel about things. Like, I don't feel that Donald Trump has betrayed his core promises. Like, I feel that he has fulfilled them in like a terrifying and horrifying kind of way. Uh, On the other hand, like Bernie is correct that like you should take seriously the imperative of like getting people who voted for Barack Obama twice and then voted for Donald Trump to like come vote for Democrats again. And that you probably don't do that by being like, hey, asshole, like I can't believe you voted for this moron. Instead, you do it by being like, hey, man, like Donald Trump, he promised you some good stuff, but he hasn't really delivered. And like, it sounds it, it seems like dumb to me analytically, but like it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like if you're if you're trying to run for reelection in Pennsylvania, like Bob Casey is like, you probably want to pay attention to what Bernie Sanders said. And on that note of having pissed everyone off unexpectedly at the very end of the weeds, we're just going to exit. Now. That's the weeds. <laughs> Fading into the bushes like Homer Simpson. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Thank you to our producer, Peter Leonard, for um, being up early to, to help us on this special post-State of the Union edition of The Weeds. Thank you to Matt and Sarah. And also thank you to me. We were all up very late and we were all here early. Thank you to us. We, yes. we, we did this. And thank, thank you to Stephen Miller for writing such a long speech. <laughs> and thank you to the members of our Facebook group who can um, comment on Matt's unpopular points. And you could be a member of our Facebook group. Um, if you just join us, if you search for The Weeds, um, you'll find it pretty easily. And thank you to the people who listen to our ad reads and then go to the ad websites <laughs> and then use our promo codes. You keep The Weeds running. You're the real heroes here. And we'll be back on Friday. <laughs>